Hello, and welcome to season four of The Taproot. The theme for this season is cultivating your career, and we are going to look at how people make a variety of career decisions and what factors go into those. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. Our first guest is Ambika Kamath, and we think she is a great guest to kick off this season. Through a discussion of her journey in science, we get a great perspective on how she's approached decision-making at each career step. Now, while the focus of this season is on early career decisions, like whether or not to go to graduate school or how to choose a postdoc, Ambika's advice here is relevant for anyone at any career stage who wants to make conscious, values-based decisions about their career in science. And with that, let's get on with the episode. So today's guest is Ambika Kamath, currently a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley, where she received a Miller Institute for Basic Research in Science postdoctoral fellowship. This year, she was awarded the American Society of Naturalists Young Investigator Award. Welcome to the Taproot, Ambika. Thank you. It's great to be here. Today's paper is a paper from Ambika's undergraduate studies. Is that correct? Yep. Wow. It is... Floral Size and Shape Evolution Following the Transition to Gender Dimorphism. And that is in the American Journal of Botany from 2017. Ambika, can you give us a short summary of this paper? Absolutely, yeah. So in this paper, what we're basically looking at is the transition that happens pretty often in plants from plants that have hermaphroditic flowers that reproduce through both male and female function to plants that have a separation among individuals and whether they reproduce through male function or female function, basically the evolution of separate sexes. And this transition has occurred a large number of times in plants in general and has occurred a bunch of times in the genus that was the focus of study in the lab that I was an undergrad in, the genus Lyceum, which is a bunch of big bulky shrubby plants that live in really dry environments. And we focus on a particular species, Lyceum californicum, where you have this transition within the same species, so in closely related populations of what's ostensibly the same species in many other ways basically focus in on the evolution of separate sexes and the consequences of flower shape and size in a way that's less confounded by other evolutionary changes that take place over longer timescales. And so specifically, we looked at flower shape and size to see how they shift as you have the evolution of separate sexes from hermaphroditic flowers. Initially, we thought this was going to be a really straightforward comparison, but as we collected the data and looked at it, we realized we really couldn't ignore abiotic variables as well. As I said, these plants live in really dry, hot environments, and the upshot seemed to be that reproduction in the species overall is really constrained by temperature and precipitation, and that's true in the hermaphroditic flowers as well as in the populations which have separate sexes. But once you have the evolution of separate sexes, plants that reproduce mostly through male function and don't have to make fruits and seeds anymore evolve to become bigger, potentially thereby attracting more pollinators. And what was interesting, though, is that shape, however, showed the reverse pattern. So flowers that were found in hotter, drier places, in terms of shape, they looked more like male flowers than female flowers. So what you have in this paper is sort of 
you have relationships between abiotic variables as well as sexual function that manifest in these really interesting ways across this latitudinal gradient. And so the work was really trying to tease about that variation. So this is such a really cool story. Did you do almost all this yourself or was this sort of a team effort? So I'd been in this lab quite a long time this project came about, and much of the previous work I had done had been part of bigger questions that the lab was asking on on using sort of mating system genes, genes for gametophytic self-incompatibility to reconstruct population history. And my advisor had wanted me to do the SRNAs work, looking at these genes for gametophytic self-incompatibility in addition to the floral morphology work. And she had done a lot of floral morphology work previously, and they continue to do it. I was stubborn, and I, I insisted that the morphology was going to be what I wanted to focus on. I didn't want to do the genetic work. And so there was some level of, and my advisor wasn't quite sure how that was going to pan out, but she, I'm grateful that she trusted me and sort of let me run with it a little bit. So the overarching plan was something that was definitely part of the lab's overall direction, but a lot of the, the nitty gritty stuff and the depth to which I took this in terms of analysis and really trying to disentangle things with this abiotic gradient came from me. As part of the thesis, the really sort of intensive flower sampling within the center of Baja California, which is really where we were able to perform those comparisons because you've got these co-sexual and dimorphic populations really close to one another. All of that sampling effort, I was involved in that fieldwork. So Jill and Rachel and I all went to Baja California and spent a couple of weeks just driving and stopping to collect flowers wherever we could. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing undergraduate experience. So tell us a little bit about this. I got into Amherst. Um, I grew up in India. I wasn't planning to come to the U.S. to do for my undergraduate, but I didn't actually get in to college anywhere that I wanted to go in India. And so then I was applying again, and it made sense to not just apply to the same two places in India. And so I added on four colleges in the U.S., Basically, at random, I like looked at a friends list and didn't do any research and just threw them on there and applied. And then Amherst was the only place I got into. And so and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going here. And thankfully, I got enough financial aid to make that feasible. But I didn't get that scholarship at the time that I got into college. What happened was, so I got to college and I'd already in high school, I had been really lucky. I went to this high school that's sort of in the middle of nowhere in southern India. It's actually also a bird preserve. And there was a behavioral ecologist doing his fieldwork on our school campus. And our biology teacher sort of convinced him to come and do some basic ecology and evolution projects with us. And that was when I just sort of got hooked onto this. And he advised me to read a whole bunch of things. And I really, and sort of at the time, I'd wanted to be a mathematician. And he sort of saw that that interest in math could be leveraged into thinking about the natural world too. And so, yeah, and at that point I was hooked. And so I had the sense when I got to Amos that I wanted to be involved in doing research in ecology and evolution. Several of my professors, as well as like from classes, as well as potentially my advisors, nominated me for this, this scholarship that gives you research funding. It was a really new scholarship, and it's primarily used as a recruitment tool. So they offer it to really promising people. It's basically unrestricted funding for wow. to, do, to sort of enhance your education <laughs> in however, whatever way you see fit. 
And at the time, it was really new. So at the time, they hadn't even thought to put a limit on how much money we could each get. Eventually, they, they realized that they, that was going to be necessary after wow. the first couple of batches. <laughs> like, we vastly overspent. So my final year, they were finally like, no, no, we're going to have to cut this off um, at some point. So yeah, that was mostly a recruitment tool. But there were a few of us that like after our first year could also get it. And so I got it at that point. And then after that, it allowed me to keep working in the lab doing research during the semesters, I do a lot of I did a lot of genetic work and then also paid for field work that I did during the summers and spring. Um, so yeah, I was phenomenally lucky to get that, and it really set me up very well for a career in research. I think. Yeah, I mean, a first author publication as an undergraduate is pretty impressive. So, I really liked how you took these sort of really complex data sets and used uh, principal component analysis to make it into a fairly simple comparison of environment versus morphology. And that's something that took me a long time to get to. As an undergraduate, was that easy for you to, to wrap your head around? I did, I don't know, as an undergrad, it did all make sense to me. I took a lot of math classes. As I said, I'd wanted to be a mathematician until I realized that I I didn't know how to talk to mathematicians. I'd find that I could talk to and feel comfortable with field biologists. And so that was a major factor in deciding that I wanted to stick in ecology right. and evolution because I found that I could relate to the people better. But I do try and take advantage of that math background to the best of my ability. So, Ambika, you you started as one of us, the plant biologist, but you're not a <laughs> plant biologist anymore. She did her PhD at Harvard with Jonathan Losos, um, who does not work on plants, although <laughs> I'm working on him. So how did you make that, that switch? What were you thinking, or was it just a no-brainer? It was not a no-brainer. So as, as I said, I had that, that scholarship that let me do all kinds of things. And I used some of that to get experience in undergrad um, doing research on lizards and then plant-animal interactions. And I think all of my research led me to be interested in and sort of guided the labs that I applied to was wanting to think about individual variation or thinking about variation at this within-species scale and really thinking about different arenas of biology in which that variation at that scale can be interesting and can be studied. Yeah, and then when I had to make the decision about where to go to graduate school, it was not necessarily a no-brainer, and I found that difficult decision really difficult. And what I eventually, and I, I would go to bed sort of dawn up about this decision that I had to make pretty soon, and I'd hope that they'd wake up the next morning having decided, and then it just didn't happen. And so I sat down with <laughs> my my undergrad advisor, Jill, Jill Miller, and basically told her, I just sort of spewed forth all of my thoughts and feelings about every place that I applied to. And then she listened to me and said, I think you want to go to Harvard and work with Jonathan Losses. And then once she said that, I was like, you're right, that is what I want to do. So I found it was not it was not an obvious decision by any means. But once it was made, it felt like the right one. This is actually the topic we kind of want to talk to you about, which is Mm -hmm. sort of the process of making these career decisions. And there are all these different ways to do it. So you just described one way to do it, which is to process it with a trusted advisor who Mm -hmm. can hear what you're saying that you can't hear yourself. What are some other ways that you have gone through, you've made big decisions? 
Yeah, that's definitely one thing that I recommend is finding someone who you trust and someone who isn't shy to say what they think. I think that's there are lots of people who I trust, but who when they do offer their opinions, but they hesitate to offer their opinions. And my undergrad advisor was not one of these people, thankfully. And so that is definitely one. Another way is to, I don't know, this isn't really a, something to recommend, but not having options is sometimes great. Right. If I had had options right. <laughs> about where to go to undergrad, I don't know what decision I'd have made, but I didn't have any options and it worked out wonderfully. As I made the transition to being from grad school to postdocing, was to really reflect deeply and make a list of the things that I thought were important to me and the things that I wanted before I was faced with an opt with a concrete option at all. And doing that was really helpful because I think once you have options in front of you, you start you, you I become susceptible to self-deception. And having that list before I actually had an option was a way to ensure that I was being true to what I what I wanted. Right. So it's like proactive decision making yeah. versus reactive decision making. Exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah, something that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, I, that's a really good way of framing it. I like that proactive versus reactive. And yeah, and that's something that I try and do more and more of now, just trying to challenge myself to always be in touch with to some degree with what I what I think I want and what's important to me and and on the flip side, that's difficult because you also have to be open to that changing. And so I, I get stuck sometimes in thinking that I want something that I had decided in a previous bout of reflection that I wanted. And then it takes me a little while to be like, oh, maybe I don't actually want that thing anymore. So it's a balance, I think, between checking in, in with yourself and sort of letting yourself go with the flow. And that's not something I'm good at. It takes a lot of work. And I do the work because I don't think I'm inherently good at it. But the work pays off. I think it's interesting that at different career stages, you have more constraints on the decisions you're going to make and the order you have to make them in. So when you're going to grad school, you usually just decide whether or not to go to grad school, and then there's a long application process. But when you're deciding to do a postdoc, you can evaluate not only different postdocs, but different career paths at the same time, and you have to make all of those considerations into a decision at one point. That's a really great point. And my decision making looked very different in the grad school versus the postdoc stage. So I was pretty sure that I wanted to go to grad school. I had the option of doing being a research tech for a year in the lab that I had been in as an undergrad. And I, I did not want to do that. I was ready to move on to something. I was also ready to move to a bigger city. At that point, I didn't really consider things. I was very sure that I wanted to go to graduate school and I felt prepared. In hindsight, what I wish I had done is taken some time to work, have a job that had nothing to do with science. Given who I was in undergrad, I don't think I would have ever made that decision. I can't imagine a universe in which I would have made that decision. So I try not to be too hard on myself for that. But that is something that I wish I had done and something that I suggest to people that they try to do if they can, if they only experience work within research. Getting some experience of what the workplace looks like outside of academia, I think, would have given me a lot of perspective that, that would have been useful in graduate school. But that decision-making looked very different when I was deciding whether to do a postdoc, because there the question of whether or not I wanted to do a postdoc was certainly one that I was considering. I had several years in graduate school where I was quite sure that I did not want to stay in academia, because the thing that I wanted to do, I thought that I wanted to do at the time, was become a science journalist. The thing that was holding me back is that 
job security is as bad, if not worse, in science journalism as it is in academia. So it didn't quite seem like a an obvious move to make. But I spent a lot of time in grad school um, becoming a better writer and trying to and really practicing science communication because I thought that I wanted to keep that possibility alive as a career. And so when it came time to decide about postdocs, that was when I really I was just actually I dug up my my list of pros and cons for staying <laughs> right. in academia versus not. And my pros there are three and my cons there are like fifteen. So right. So this is let's just set the scene here. So yeah. you are in your last year of your PhD? I was in my fifth year and it ended up being a six year PhD. Yeah. I was in right. my fifth year. So you're you're not quite done yet, but you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yep. And you're starting to think, is this what I really want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd been thinking that for my third and fourth years as well. So all through my third and fourth years of my PhD, I was really not quite sure about what I was doing. I feel like that's almost universal. I certainly had multiple times during my PhD when I was not sure that I wanted to stay in academia. Liz, did you uh, have that experience? I did not. So I have to be honest and say I went straight through my PhD knowing exactly that I wanted to be a professor. Mm. And I never really doubted it. I doubted whether I would be able to do it. Like, will I will I be successful at it? But I always knew, not always, always during my PhD, <laughs> I knew it. And um, But I think I was definitely a rare breed, even way back in 1920 when I got my PhD. <laughs> I see more young adults coming in. Their first year, they already have sort of a, an idea of what they want to do. And seems like less frequently is at academia, then you still see them going through these mm. phase of like, oh, but is that really what I want to do? Or I'm not really sure. And they make a change and then they flip back. And so I think that's kind of a normal part of the process. Yeah, I definitely think it is a normal part of the process. But one thing that was frustrating while I was in that process is the number of people who had been through that who said, oh, no, you'll get through this and you'll want to stay in academia. I felt like nobody or very few people took my like desire to do something else seriously. Um, yeah, that's a bummer. And I was lucky that my PhD advisor did not do that. Like he he let me, he he had no problem with me taking the time to become a better writer. And I like, I went to science writing conferences and workshops and things. And he was, he supported that a lot. And he really walked that balance very well of saying, if you want to stay in academia, I have no doubt that you can do it. But if you don't want to, that's fine. I think that balance, right. having my PhD advisor be supportive of the confusion, I guess, was was really a huge part of feeling empowered in graduate school to, like, I felt like my future was within my control to a degree that I, in some ways I don't feel right now. And I miss that feeling. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. We had talked about this earlier, sort of as a idea of like deciding what your values are, and then making decisions based on that before your opportunities come, you decide mm-hmm. how you're going to approach each opportunity. When you when you said that to me before, I was like, I'm not sure I could even articulate what my values are. I mean, I spent some time this last year writing what my personal mission is, like as a almost full professor. But when I was a graduate mm. student, that would have been really hard for me to do. So I'm intrigued by the idea of this as a process we could recommend to young people. Just tell us more about that. 
I don't know. It works for me, but I realize that different people are different, right? And we've all got to find for us. I balk at recommendations in general or advice in general. So in some ways, this whole endeavor is a bit bit odd for me. Like I try to write non-advice advice, you know, um, when I write it. And, <laughs> and I'm also an advice column junkie because I'm always trying to find people who are good models for giving advice. But my absolute favorite advice column at the moment actually is one called Ask Bali by Heather Havrileski. And she does a phenomenal job of getting to the core. She doesn't actually tell you what to do, except that she often recommends that people go to therapy, which is definitely unequivocally something that people should do. Anyway, so what she does is encourage you to really sit with your feelings. And I think that's something that I've had to learn how to do as I continue just being a person is like trusting your feelings and like sitting with your feelings. So a lot of my decisions, I guess, are not... Like you have some questions further down where you say, how do you balance all of these different things? And it's never a formula. It's just sort of sitting with my feelings and trusting that when I feel good about something, then I feel good about that thing. I think that's such an important part of the whole thing is A, spending the time to figure out what you're feeling right. and also just letting yourself feel it before you commit. We actually flipped a coin to decide grad school where we would go to grad school and sat with it for about two hours and decided that we really didn't like the way the coin had come up and that sealed our decision mm -hmm. to do the other one. There's a really good poem and it's called The Psychological Tip. Whenever you're called on to make up your mind and you're hampered by not having any, the best way to solve the dilemma you'll find is simply by spinning a penny. No, not so the chance she'll decide the affair while you're passively standing there moping. But the moment the penny is up in the air, you'll suddenly know what you're hoping. And that is actually, I'm just remembering this, is one of, like, there was one decision about where to apply to grad school that I made in this way, where I tossed a penny, decided that I did not want the penny to land heads. Um, yeah, I think I made my grad school decision sort of in the same way. It was, where can I, it wasn't where, where do I want to go, but like, where can I not stand to not go? If I make the decision to go somewhere else, wh where am I going to feel like a loss? Mm -hmm. And that, then that made it really easy. But so you, you're coming to a decision and you're trying to get ahead of your options and trying to write these values down. And I, and I think given, given the discussions we've been having about grad student mental health, I think mm, this yeah. is one more of the super stressors is that next step. And I think A, the, the idea of get some counseling and get it early and take your time to make this decision and and so right. you're not like all right I am writing chapter 1 of my thesis and now I have to decide the rest of my life what am I going to do but you're as a process through grad school you are thinking about next steps but not in a hurry and maybe trying to identify what your values should be is really good. So I'm really curious are you willing to share a few of the values you wrote down just as an example? Absolutely. So one thing, I, can I just speak a little bit to therapy before that? Please do. For me, at least, like the, doing the work of like finally sitting down to reflect on who I was as a person and like addressing some stuff that had needed to be addressed for a very long time. That was just it's the it's the hardest thing I've ever done. So, yeah. So I wish I'd been going earlier. And I wish I, I mean, I think in hindsight, as I'm describing this to you, I come together as a very put together person. But in reality, I wasn't I wasn't quite that put together. 
Yeah. And so in terms of thinking about the values, I tried to find the actual list of things. So I remember making a list of like, this is what I want from my postdoc that would like serve as a template for making a decision about it. And I can't find quite that list. But in my pros and cons list, what I wrote down, why I want to stay in science, I wrote down science is interesting. You have flexibility in your job and there's a liberal atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And the cons included job uncertainty, overwork, stress, funding uncertainty, bias preventing advancement, mental health, time for physical health, dealing with non-transparent bureaucracy. <laughs> all and, of these and, other and you were able to rule those all out. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty insightful for a graduate student. <laughs> uh, and this is the list that I came up with. And so having considered all of this, then I made the list of like, okay, what, how interesting does the science have to be for it to be worth it to deal with all of this other stuff? And so I remember writing down that I wanted science where I felt like I could um, I wanted to gain new skills. I wanted to be able to do experiments in the field and that working with lizards, field experiments were not something that I could do. I also was trying to be pretty practical about it because I had by that point a sense of what you needed to, like you need publications to get a job in academia. And so I wanted to make sure that I went to a postdoc lab where there had been a track record of high publication rates and that I felt like I'd be able to jump into a new system and hit the ground running. So those were sort of the options that I was, from a scientific standpoint, playing around with in my head. At the time, I didn't really have too much of a list of like what I wanted otherwise from the perspective of my personal life. That is something that is much, much more important to me now. Right now, I, as I'm deciding where to apply to jobs, I'm thinking more about kind of life I want to live as compared to, say, whether I want to be at an R1 or not, or um, whether I want to... Yeah, so I think at this point, actually, I guess as a PI, you get to do the science you want to do wherever you go, right? For the, for the <laughs> most part, to some degree, in some way. But so for me right now... I don't know. You're laughing. So maybe that's a well, wrong you, thing. You had, you, 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 your, your unequivocal statement got four qualifiers right after it, which I think are quite appropriate. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, at least like at least it's it's not the same as doing a postdoc, Absolutely. right? Where like Absolutely. you could end up in a lab that's just doing something that's entirely uninteresting to you. I'm reflecting on this now, like such a shift in my perspective, because at the time when I was deciding where to do a postdoc, as a graduate student, I made a conscious decision to do research that was interesting to me, even if it wouldn't get into a really high-profile journal. And then there was a couple of years where I knew it was interesting, but I couldn't convince anybody else that it was interesting. And so all of that angst is reflected in just like how important it was to me that I, did, I didn't want to end up in a postdoc lab where I did work that was flashy and that would get me good papers, but that I didn't care about. And so I was trying very hard to find somewhere where I could do stuff that was interesting to me and that was still practical in terms of wanting this career. Yeah, you have to consider both. Where do I want to get to and what am I going to have to do to get there? Yeah. But also, how do I want to live now? And I think the balance between those two, those two are often in conflict and which side sort of wins out depends on the career stage and of course, sort of your level of power and privilege really yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something I would be I'm interested in what you think about how one's position of privilege or power plays into all of these decisions, because I think mm -hmm. that where you sit can really impact what you value. So, for example, you may it may be the most important to mm -hmm. you, maybe having economic security like that could be the most important thing to you. 
Or you could be in a situation where you know you can fall back on your parents. And so doing something very where you go Mm -hmm. into debt or where you aren't going to get paid really a living wage is like no big deal. And you can just put the science first and tell me what you think about all that. Yeah, I absolutely recognize that the only reason I can make decisions like this at all is because I have tremendous privilege and have been able to build on it, right? Like, I got a lot of financial aid going to college, but my parents still paid a substantial amount of money to for me to go to college at Amherst. So from that point on, I... I sort of did my best to not depend on them financially. And I've been lucky to not have to do that after college. But like that was a huge investment. And that has really set me up from that stage on to to be able to be in positions where I can make these sorts of decisions. I feel like I can take risks that many people wouldn't be able to. I'm trying to think if I, any of my decisions have actually been risky in that way. But simply having these options available to me has just definitely been a subject, a consequence of privilege. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that like this comes from Indian society being horrifically unequal. So I come from an upper caste Hindu family. So my parents are Brahmin, which means that we're sort of at the top of the caste hierarchy and have benefited from this for thousands of years, right? So the fact that I am well-educated and come from a well-off family is on the back of thousands of years of privilege. And that is, in no uncertain terms, largely why I'm able to do what I do and that I'm here today. Like, the ways in which conversations about privilege have to be nuanced, right, is I don't know that it is salient to or relevant to most Americans thinking about, I don't know, like... I'd imagine that a lot of people see all of us South Asians as uniformly brown, but there are huge disparities that have been going on for as long or much longer than other inequalities faced by people in the U.S. that function within within our society. In Indian society, I'm about as privileged as one can get, except for the fact that I'm a woman. But it's still some parts of that privilege translate over to the U.S. and others parts don't, right? Like I got into Amherst in no small part probably because there was an effort at the time to diversify the student body by the Amherst College president. Like There was a substantial and conscious effort to diversify the student body, and we were part of that process. It was fascinating because the goal was just that, diversify the student body, and and nobody sort of planned for what would happen to all of us diverse people once we got there, and so we were kind of part of an experiment. But yeah, so it was a combination of being incredibly privileged and being able to access this opportunity from India combined with this effort from within the U.S. to move education to greater number of people. So, I mean, one of the things about what we were talking about, about trying to make decisions before you have to make decisions, is that once you're in your postdoc, there is no real time to make decisions before you have to make decisions, because you, there is no constraint other than maybe how long your contract is, but the contract usually can be broken quite easily by resigning. There's no timeline for when that next decision comes. How do you think about that process? Yeah, so that's something that was in large part the motivating factor for writing that blog post that, Liz, I think you read, is just that I don't know how to do it. Because as I was saying earlier, I've lost some of that. In graduate school, it felt like I had more options. And it feels like the further you go down an academic path, it feels like I have fewer options. 
And one thing I've realized is that whether or not you are actually in control, feeling like you're in control seems to be a helpful aspect to making decisions. And so one thing I'm trying to do as I gear up for this next season of applying to jobs is really like doing that, prioritizing what it is that I want out of these jobs again. And I'm lucky again here to have had people who've done this before. So I have colleagues who were sort of ill-advisedly picky about places where they applied to. They didn't apply to very many jobs, but they were also entirely prepared to do something else than academia. And I think to me, at least that retaining that possibility of saying, I am going to stay in academia if I can do it on my own terms is something that I can't escape. And I think part of me had hoped that by the time I got to being a postdoc, I wouldn't feel this beholden to the system in the same way as I did when I was a graduate student, but I do. In some ways, it's even trickier to talk about this right now, right? Like, what if a potential employer hears me talk saying, oh, I don't know if I want to stay in academia and views that as a sign of not being committed enough to this job? It's just, it becomes so difficult to, to make, but I still want to say it because at the end of the day, like, that is, if it's true for me, and it's going to be true for a lot of people <laughs> that get interviewed or people that want to be professors, is that, and I think the idea of choosing and feeling like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm, I want to stay in academia, but I want to do it on my own terms, is the way in which you get people in academia that are ready to challenge the system to make it better, right? Like, if you have people coming in feeling beholden to the system, they're not going to push it to change in ways that it needs to change to be more inclusive and to be more equitable. And yeah, so I I haven't wrapped my head around it fully. And as I was, and the one thing, I got some really good advice from my PhD advisor when I was freaking out the day before a job interview this past season, where he said, you were really good at being you, and you've gotten to where you are by being you. So just keep being you, it'll be okay. Like, I can't shake the idea that who I am is someone that does not want to feel beholden to my workplace in the way that academia seems to so often demand. Okay, so part of me wants to say, you don't have to be beholden to the institution. You can be whoever you want and do a great job here. Like, look around and look at all the people just being, they're being whoever. They're being who they are. But then the other part of me remembers faculty searches where it's obvious that there's a particular style, Mm -hmm. mode, personality, narrowness of interest that is required for success at the game. Yeah. So what I want to say is what Jonathan clearly said to you, which is you can't be anybody other than who you are anyway. So just be yourself and bring that dynamic into academia, make academia accommodate you, right? But that's difficult. But it's difficult. And I don't think it's actually good advice. Uh, The thing, though, is I think it's good advice for life. It's bad advice for getting a job in academia, right? Like it may well be that I will be whoever I am and not get a job because of that. And I have to be okay with that is the thing, Yeah, right? And I have to have another plan. I remember the job market being incredibly frustrating, partially because there are so few jobs and the right, which ones are the right match. So you can have all of your values laid out. But if the jobs that match your values are not in the places you want to live, it feels like you have so much less control 
And I think that's really hard to be able to sit right with you. Absolutely. And I think if I am feeling this, someone who has about as elite an education as you can get, I don't know, I have everything going for me in so many ways. And I still feel this way. Like I just, it is, if anything, a much more difficult set of decisions to make for most other people who are postdocs and don't conform to what the status quo is in academia. Yeah. And I don't know. It's not, it's not something I have answers to yet, but I'm, I'm going to have to figure it out in the next couple of years. And so we'll see. I think realizing that you're for many people, and I don't think this is right or equitable, but for mm -hmm. many people, their values may not match with the available jobs when they are at that point. And so you have to have other options other than academia that you can find that will meet your values. So again, this comes back to this point that I keep finding myself making, which is that it is not incumbent upon trainees to conform. It is incumbent on institutions and people in power to relax our requirements, to change what we're asking people to do and be. So give right. us advice. What can we be doing, search committees be doing, what can like institutionalized old people like us do to make things better? I actually have no problem giving advice to people further along than me. It involves just, again, a lot of introspection and a lot of being real with yourself. So one thing that seems to be so clear at, from hearing people's stories on the job market is this, this vague notion of fit, right? And how important that seems to be in making decisions about who gets hired and who doesn't. And I can totally see how that's crucial because nobody wants to end up in a place where they feel like they don't fit. But how often is that a cloak that's pulled over all sorts of... Sexist, racist opinions. Exactly, right. Or like people being pushed out of their comfort zone, right? People being forced to interact with someone by virtue of hiring them as a colleague with someone who makes them uncomfortable, who challenges them, who pushes them, right? Being okay with discomfort is something, if faculty start to train themselves to be okay with people who they're uncomfortable with, but who they recognize are pushing things in the direction that things need to go, that is where I think the onus really lies, on not choosing the comfortable option. Well, I would love to keep this conversation going. We, we need to wrap it up. This has been fantastic. Ambika, I really appreciate you sharing your time and your, your process with us. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? You could either find me on Twitter or email me, and the handle is the same. It's A-M-B-I-K-A-M-A-T-H, which is my first and last name squished together in a portmanteau. Uh, it's not Ambika Math. Um, but yeah, at gmail.com or on Twitter, that's my handle. So yeah. And Liz, how can uh, people reach you? You can tweet at me at at E Haswell. And you can reach me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can reach the Taproot at Taproot Podcast. And with that, we will wrap this up. Ambika, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for the chance to talk about all of this stuff. Thanks, Ambika.
Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Katie Rogers. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron Scholar Juniper Kiss. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us out with transcripts. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.